Good morning again, Redeemer family. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 1. Now, if you have your English Bible, uh, Ruth is after Judges. And if you have a Hebrew Bible, Ruth is after Proverbs. So depending on what you're using this morning, Ruth might be in two different places. More on that in a moment. We'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the days when judges, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, uh, we turn our hearts to your word, and there are manifold distractions that can flood our minds. This is not a coincidence. The God of this world seeks to veil the beauties of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would go to war against him, that you will give us heavenly attention, that you will allow us, Lord, to cast off the cares of this world and to focus on you and what the King of heaven has written for his people. Father, I pray that you will feed us with your word and that we would leave here, Lord, with an increased comfort and hope in the world in which we live. We love you, Jesus. May you be exalted from these pages. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, Ruth is one of the two books in your Bibles named after a woman. One is Esther and the other one is Ruth. Now, as mentioned, if you have a Hebrew Bible, maybe you're a seminary student, the book of Ruth comes after Proverbs. And we think that's because Proverbs 31 ends with celebrating this virtuous woman, this excellent wife, who is far more precious than silver and gold, who can find her. And in the Hebrew Bible, if you want to find a picture of the excellent wife, the excellent woman, you turn over and it's Ruth. Ruth, a Moabite woman, is a picture of the excellent wife of Proverbs 31. But most of us have our English Bibles, and Ruth follows Judges, and so Ruth is, is follow, it is functioning like a chronological link. You have Judges, then Ruth, then First and Second Samuel, and then the Kings. And, and the reason Ruth is there is because it's a bridge. 
It's giving you a bridge from the days of the judges when Israel did not have a king. And then 1 Samuel comes after it because Samuel is the one who anoints Israel's first king, Saul, and then its second king, the great king, David. And so what Ruth is doing is giving us a window into the family of David. It's showing us what his family endured. David shows up on the scene, and he is this king that is overlooked. He is this king who slays the Philistine giant. He is this king who unites the people of Israel. He is this king that is called the man after God's own heart, even with his failures. But he is a great king for Israel. And the question starts to loom, well, where did he come from? And so what Ruth does is it it goes back and it shows us that there was almost a time in which David was not. That the good of the nation seemed to be hanging on a thread. That there was disaster and calamity and suffering and sadness and death. And yet God Almighty intervenes and redeems this family And then blesses Israel with this king. And so when times were fearful, God is faithful. This book isn't ultimately about Ruth. It's not ultimately about David. It's about the faithfulness of God when times are fearful. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I mean, we're not David, we're not kings of Israel, we're not slaying Philistine giants, but we are a kingdom unto God. We do engage in spiritual warfare, and we do live our lives on this broken earth, and there are times when things get dark and heavy and weighty and sad. And one of the questions that we want to know is, is there hope? Can God be trusted? And what Ruth is going to tell us over and over and over again, he is faithful. And so what I want to do this morning is look at two points, not three. I want to look at the acute heartache in life. I want to look at the astonishing hope in life. Those two points, acute heartache and astonishing hope. Let's start with acute heartache. The start of this book is on a low note, that what we see happening in the span of these six verses, it's like a nightmare inside of a nightmare. First, there's a famine. And this family, Elimelech, whose name means, by the way, God is my king, it's a family of four, and so he leaves. He leaves Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. So these names mean something in, in, in Ruth. So this man, whose name is God is my king, leaves the house of bread because of what? There's a famine in the house of bread. The house of bread has no bread. And so what does he do with his family of four? They leave, and of all places, they go into Moab. Well, Moab is a foreign land, 
Jimmy, can you show, Andre, can you show this? So you might, I don't have my pointer, but, but, but you can look right over there where Judah is, and, and somewhere north of Judah is where you would uh, see Bethlehem. And then if you go over the Dead Sea, go over by Gad and Reuben, and then you go south, you get into Moab. And so this man, we believe, makes a 100 to 120-mile journey out of the land that God told Israel to have over the mountains, over the river, and then back down into Moab. All right, thank you. And while he's there, he drinks the water of the town and he dies. And Ruth, who's thinking to herself, okay, it's grief, but I have two sons that will be okay because they'll get married and they'll have children and They'll keep the family name going. And then one day, her sons don't come home. And so she and her daughters go to town to look for them. They've gone there to sell the grain and to make a profit. And little did she know that on their way home, they were robbed and killed. And she walks on a scene and she sees her sons both lying there dead. And no one in the town says anything because she's in a foreign land. Now, that's not in this passage, right? So don't go looking for it. It's it's not in the passage. We don't know how Elimelech died. We don't know how Malon and Kilion died. Which is intriguing because in, in, in this book, We do get specificity. We do know when Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem that it's at the beginning of the barley season. We do know how much barley that she gleans from Boaz's field. It's an ephah, right? So they're being really specific in certain places. But then when you read the opening chapter, it's very general. We don't know how either of the men died. We don't know if they died together. We don't know how they died. But, But can you imagine what this does to a woman to a mother to a wife? Some of you are wives. Some of you are mothers. And we're all human. What does this do to the soul? We don't have to guess. We can peek down a few verses from the verses that we're in this morning. When Ruth and Naomi eventually return, the townspeople greet her Oh, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? And by the way, Naomi means pleasant. And she says, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has been bitter to me. Normally in the Bible, you see a name change, Abram to Abraham, And God is showcasing something new that he's about to do. And here is what Naomi is saying. Don't call me pleasant. My life has not matched. My name has not matched my experience. You call me bitter. You've been there before? Or you might not want to change your name. But spiritually speaking... You're becoming embittered and hard-hearted 
and coarse. That's where she is. It's one calamity after another, after another, after another, after another. And she says, it's, it's changing me, making me bitter. And the question that I want to wrestle with is, is why? If you've been there, then, then one of the questions is, Lord, how? How did I get here? And why? Like, 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 why me? Like, how did we get here? And I think we have some options here. I want you to imagine a table of dominoes. Not, not when you're playing bones, right, and you're slapping them and you're trying to score points by fives. I mean, like, you know, when we're kids, we, like, stack dominoes. We, we, we kind of line them up, and we have them curving, and all we want to do is to hit the first one and make the rest of them kind of fall down. I want to question, okay, what's the first domino? What's the domino that's making everything else happen down here? And by reading it at first glance, you might say the, it's the famine. This famine sets in course everything that's happen, happening. There's a famine, so they leave. They leave, so they go here. They go here, so they die. And so, yes, that's what it is. It's the famine. If, if there was no famine, then, then none of this happens. Maybe. Or maybe there's more. Here's what's going on in the Judges. Joshua died at 110 years old. That entire generation died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, Judges chapter 2. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of Israel, again, did what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Judges 3, because they have transgressed my covenant, I will no longer drive the nations out. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel, for they had done what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. That's Judges 3. So now put it together. Why in the world would we go back and read Judges to understand what's going on in Ruth? Because the opening line of Ruth is, in the days when the judges ruled. In other words, the backdrop to Ruth is Judges. And what was happening in Judges? There was no king. They did what they wanted to. And God says, okay, I'll strengthen the Moabites. I'll strengthen these nations. And did you remember where Elimelech took his family? Of all places, he took them to Moab. to enemy territory, to the epicenter of idolatry. And his sons took on Moabite wives. No big deal, huh? Deuteronomy 28, God lays out covenant blessings and covenant curses. 
If you faithfully obey my voice, blessed shall you be in the city and the field. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading kneading bowl. Your barns will overflow. The Lord will open to you his good treasures. The heavens will give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of, of the Lord and be careful to do his commands, Curses shall come upon you. You shall be cursed in the city and cursed in the field. You shall be consumed off the land because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness. The Lord will send you away in hunger and thirst and nakedness. Take care lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. The anger of the Lord will be kindled and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish. And so maybe the first domino is not the famine. Maybe the first domino is their idolatry. It's them not loving the Lord, their God, with their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole strength. It's them going after other gods. It's maybe that's the first domino that's setting these other chain of events in course. If this is the case, then this is godly discipline. And his discipline is painful. The backdrop to Ruth is fear and famine and failure, poverty, powerlessness, and pain. You see, last week, Jeff opened up Luke 15 to us, and he gave us the parable of two sons. And one son wanted the inheritance, and he took it, and he went into a foreign land And he bawled out of control. And then there was a famine in that land. And he came to his senses. And he turned around and he went home. And we can tie a bow on that story because it it, it showcases the father's love. That's not Ruth one. Well, it is, but maybe not how you think. Ruth 1, a man takes his family and his sons into a foreign land, and they die in a foreign land. I think it's a warning for us. There is a way that seems right. There is a path that is broad, but in the end, it leads to death and destruction. I think it's a warning for us all to be examining what we're giving our hearts to and what we are pursuing and what we are desiring. It reads as if Elimelech traded in the bread from the father's table for the bread in Moab, and he ended up getting more than he bargained for. It's showing us, right, like the, the wages of turning away from the Lord. Death. And maybe you're there. 
Maybe the thing that's causing you heartache right now, maybe if you examine your own heart, your own life, you can look along the way and you can see choices that you've made in rebellion. Or maybe this is generic suffering, like Job. Or this is just living in a broken world that's not right. And at any moment, we can go from abundance to just hardship, just like that. In either case, wherever we are, for whatever reason, the billion-dollar question is, is there hope? I get it, Pastor L. I've made bad decisions. Is there hope? I get it, Pastor L. I have not made really bad decisions. I don't know why this is going. You still want to know, is there hope? And so regardless of how you get there or how we interpret what's going on, the billion-dollar question is, is there hope? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? And here is what Ruth 1 says, there is astonishing hope, which is our second point. One of the sweetest phrases in the entire book of Ruth is right there in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. That in verses 1 through 5, if we see God who disciplines, God who, 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 who sometimes does these hard things to his people that we might repent and turn back, then what verse 6 says is his anger will not endure forever, that he will relent. He takes no pleasure in the suffering of his people. And so notice what, what, what Ruth 1.6 says. It says he visited his people. Now in the Old Testament, when you see God visiting his people, the context is really important. Take a passage like Deuteronomy, uh, no, like Exodus 32, when they had made the golden calf. God said to Moses, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So God is not coming to bless there. He's actually saying, hey, a day is coming and they will feel the brunt of their consequences. But when the Lord visits, it can also be with peace and blessing. The Lord visited Sarah as he promised, Genesis 21. Joseph, when he is about to die, he says, God will visit you and bring you up out of the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he visits you, you go get my dead bones. You get my dead bones and you bring my dead bones out of Egypt because I believe in the land of promise. In other words, Joseph is saying, I know that God will visit and he will visit to bring us into the land. And so when we see this idea of God visiting, it's never to do nothing. It's always to do something. And the question becomes, what are you showing up to do? And in this passage, he's showing up with bread. He's not coming to heap more famine upon famine. He's coming to reverse the misfortune of his people the house of bread that was famished in Ruth 1.1 1, 1, 
now has bread again in Ruth 1.6. The same God who brought the famine is the same God who will not forget the covenant he established with his people. He does not take pleasure of them living in a land foreign to him. He does not take pleasure in their suffering, in their affliction. He himself says, I will show up and I will show out, as they used to say. He acted. Did you notice how she found out? It says she heard that there was food. Now think about that. She didn't see a grain, hold it, taste it. She heard with her ears that God had visited. Did you notice where she was when she heard this? She heard in the fields of Moab. This makes total sense. This is a woman who is old. She actually says, I'm too old to have a husband later. This is supposed to be the golden years. She's supposed to have children, grandchildren running around. She's supposed to not be in the fields of Moab working. But you get the image that she's an old woman in the fields working. Because guess what? In Moab, you eat what you kill. In Moab, it's not like Israel. We don't have gleaning laws in Moab. Have you forgotten where you are, old woman, in Moab? You better get out here and get in this field just like everybody else in Moab. And it is there in the fields that she hears this good gossip. Yahweh has visited. And there is bread in the house of bread. The news traveled north, through the mountains, over the river, and down to the fields where she was. This is God making sure that his goodness is being heard of even out there. I imagine that that stopped her in her tracks, that these Moabites are just gossiping, and all of a sudden she hears Yahweh has visited, and it piques her interest. And all of a sudden, did you notice what happened? On this particular day, she heard the best news she had heard in years. I would have loved to see her face. She walked out that morning to, 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 to work, and all of a sudden, the Lord intervened and interrupted her working to give her a picture, a glimpse of his goodness in the middle of a sweating day of labor. The goodness of the Lord shows up. And look, look at the turn. I mean, it goes from talking about her and who's died in verse 5. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 6, it says, she arose. 
She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab because she heard in the fields that the Lord had visited. In other words, she hears and she believes and she bounces. She hears and she believes and she bounces. She's like, I'm out. I'm gone. This is gospel faith. This is the type of faith that pleases the Lord. Now, I know when we typically think about faith in God, we typically use this phrase with respect to salvation, that I need to trust God for my salvation. His primary concern is making me right with him. I have a grave problem, my sin, and Jesus is a savior of sinners. And so faith in God is salvific. However, when you read the book of Hebrews, faith in God is holistic. Like, like think about who shows up in Hebrews 11 and think about what the, what the author of Hebrews is, is sort of embodying and pointing us to. That the creation of the world, we believe that by faith, the giving of gifts to God, Cain and Abel, is in faith. The using a hammer to build an ark by Noah is faith. The leaving of a land, Abraham, is in faith. The conceiving of a child is faith. Sarah, the offering of that son, Abraham, is faith. Joseph saying, carry my bones out of Egypt when he visits is faith. Hiding a child, Moses' parents, is counted as faith. Denouncing Egyptian privilege because he was an Israelite who then left Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, is Moses. It's counted as faith. Walking on dry land and defeating armies in battle is faith. Hiding spies. Rahab is faith. In other words, do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing? That faith in God is about the object. It's about him. And taking him at his own word. And if you say you're raising a deliverer from our midst, And I will go against the king and I will hide a son. And if you say you're going to take us into the promised land, and even though I die and I will not get there, you take my bones out of Egypt. And when he comes, you carry them out. In other words, it's bigger than God, than looking to God for our salvation. It's taking God at his word. And obeying. And so the definition we get is faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen, that without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And that's exactly what happens in this passage Naomi hears that the Lord has visited. She hears that there is bread, and she doesn't have to see it. She doesn't have to taste it. 
she knows Him. And she seeks Him. And she trusts Him. That she, like Joseph, doesn't want to be buried in Moab. I want to be with my people. That she, like Abraham, is hearing God's beckoning call. Leave and come home. I've relented of my anger. I abound in steadfast love and mercy. And I will reverse this misfortune. The famine drove you out. I'm going to bring you food to bring you back in. I want you home with me. And she leaves. That's hope. That it latches on to something God has said about himself. And it reckons it as done because he is faithful. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like Naomi, that your world is upside down and it's chaotic. And maybe these are choices that you've made and maybe it's not. But I'm here to tell you to trust the Lord. The years that the locust has devoured, he promises to restore. No good thing will he withhold from his people. That what is the thing that's causing you the most heartache in life right now? God is saying, give it to me. Turn to me. I'm a big God. Cast your cares upon me. Is your marriage on the rocks? Is it a besetting sin? Is it the fear of the future? Is it illness? Is it depression? Is it sadness? Is it fear over our country? That whatever is causing you this grief and heartache this hour, the Lord says to you, I will restore. I will keep. I will protect. I will preserve. That nothing is impossible for me. That my hand is strong and my arms are mighty. And my love is relentless. He says, trust me. How can I look at you this morning knowing that some of us are hurting and tell you to trust the Lord? You see, thousands of years after this, God visited Bethlehem with something greater than barley. He visited Bethlehem and gave her a son, born of the virgin, in Bethlehem, of all places. He sent Bethlehem a savior and a king and a conqueror. And right there in this same city, Christ was born. 
And all those covenant curses in Deuteronomy, Christ bore them. And all of those covenant commands that we fail to live into, Christ did that. That Satan tried to tempt him and he passed. That the true bread from Bethlehem has come to us to bring you and I into the true house of God. In Christ, God comes running to meet us. Where Elimelech left the place of famine to seek the false blessing in Moab, we believe that Jesus left the glories of heaven to bring us true blessings on earth. They set, they, Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build a kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus went into exile from his father's presence that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and living future in his kingdom. All the things that God strips away and that hurts us in this life, Jesus has tasted that. He too was stripped of all things and endured pain unimaginable. But he did it for you and I. That every tear of loss that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. You see, Matthew picks up on this. This book isn't just about David. It's about the real king who's coming to make things right. And if you're in Jesus, God looks at you and he says, I love you. And I desire you. And nothing will separate you from my love. Not your choices. Not this earth. Not things present. Not things to come. My love and tenderness towards you is forever because of Christ. Will you trust him this morning? Will you trust him? And that's my prayer, is that we would hear the good news of what Christ has done in the midst of our heartache, and that we would turn and run to him and rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name, and I do pray for your people. Father, I can't imagine to begin to know what is plaguing our hearts. Father, it is certain that we will enter uh, into glory, having been tried and having been on the other end of hardship. But Father, thank you that you who have started a good work in us will finish it in the day of Christ Jesus. Bless us now as we turn our hearts to the supper. May you feed us from your table. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We'll sing two verses from our communion hymn, and then I'll come up and we'll administer the sacraments.
Amen. Please be seated. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people and their leftovers. That interestingly, there are 12 baskets of fragments of barley loaves remaining. When this crowd had their fill, um, they tried to seize Jesus and make him king in that moment. And Jesus hid himself. He withdrew to a mountain. And then he walked on water. And the next day, those same crowds who ate that bread that he had given them came back again for more bread. And Jesus tells them, do not labor for bread that perishes. Labor for bread that endures to eternal life. And he says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. He goes on to say that I have come not to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that I will lose none of all that he has given me. But on that last day, I will raise them up. That's a promise to us, you guys. That's Jesus telling us this world will pass away and the things of this world will pass away, but he endures forever and his people have been blessed and sealed with a security that is matchless. And so as we come to the supper this morning, may we come mindful that God is for you that he wants you to taste and to see and to know that he is good. I know we doubt, and I know we worry, and I know we fret if God truly cares for us and is with us. But every time we come to the table, it is a reminder that he is with you, he is for you, and he will let nothing separate you from his love. If you're not a believer, and we'd ask that during this hour that you would abstain. I'm happy to meet with you and talk to you about the doctrines of our religion. We have a new members class right now that we'd invite you to consider. But God's meal is for God's people. I'm going to pray for us and we'll partake together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for accommodating our faith for not just telling us how you feel and telling us what you've done, but giving us something tactile that we can touch and to taste. Jesus, we set apart this regular bread and this regular juice for holy means. Would you use it to strengthen our faith? Would you use it to help us to fight sin? Would you use it to speak in ways that even a sermon cannot? This is your intention behind your sacrament. Would you bless your people? For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. All right, so we got these packets. There's a clear one, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and, and pull the clear flap back first. There you go. Got it? All right. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. 
I, in his name, am doing the same for you this morning. This is not my bread. Jesus says to you, take and eat. This is his body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Let us eat together. Now, if you will slowly peel back the purple foil. In the same manner, Jesus also took the cup, and he had also given thanks, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of their sins. He says, Drink from it. All of you, let us drink together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a good and gracious God. Thank you for the surprising good news that we hear echoed not only in Ruth, but in all of life. As we read your word, as we have conversations with friends and spouses, Father, thank you for the way that seemingly uh, meaningless or minuscule moments can turn into gospel moments where you strengthen our faith and arrest our worship. May that be so uh, even this hour. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Will you stand? I'll pronounce the benediction and we'll sing our closing two hymns. Closing two lines. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, may he make you perfect in every good work to do his will. May the Holy Spirit work in you that which is pleasing in God's sight through Jesus Christ, in whom there is glory and majesty and power and might now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen.